Good morning. Thank you, spiritual folks, for being here in person this morning and for watching us online as well. Glad you're here. Look around, you spiritual superstars. Wow. Fourth of July. Big plans? Everybody have big plans today? No? Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> it's just like every Sunday. Anyway. So, it was bound to happen. It was inevitable. I saw it coming. I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so. We are now running out of words. Here's what happened, all right? Since the public was granted access to the World Wide Web in 1993, by the way, do you believe it was really only 1993? I feel like it's been there forever. But since then, people have been sharing their previously, and I'd argue appropriately, private opinions, their thoughts, their hopes, their dreams, their ideas. They've been sharing these things with nameless, faceless strangers all over the world. That wasn't a thing when I was young. You, you shared your ideas with the people who would hang around with you, and that was pretty much it. But now, no one holds back. And as a result, as people hear the inner workings of essentially the, the brains of other people, we didn't used to have access to that, but now as we're hearing these things, we're hearing the, the opinions of others, well, then our opinions have changed. They've become more bold. And hearing everybody else's opinion has made our thoughts more creative and has made our hopes more lofty and our dreams more ambitious. But it's also made a lot of people's ideas a lot more radical. But that's not even the real issue. The real issue is that all this sharing that's been going on has brought about two changes in the way we communicate. So here's the first change. See, all the chatter that we're exposed to, and you don't even realize how much chatter it is, but all the chatter we've been exposed to has, has led to the creation of brand new words. Like, on a daily basis, new words are invented. And secondly, this constant flood of, of, of talking has also led to the reimagining, let's say, of old words, established words, words we already knew what they meant. This is unprecedented. You see, in the past, if we wanted to improve our communication abilities, if, what would we do? Well, we'd work on enlarging our vocabularies. It's kind of funny, you remember years ago, Mike Tyson decided he was gonna, he was gonna enlarge his vocabulary, so he started listening to books and reading books, and he started using bigger and bigger words. That's, that's kind of how we used to do that, actually. And we would do it by, by reading more, probably. Reading the, the classics of the English language, Shakespeare, Milton, Faulkner, Hemingway, you know, the classics. And, and in those days, if you wanted to expand your vocabulary, if you wanted to learn how to communicate better, it was incumbent upon us to learn the words we didn't know. And then what we'd do is we'd then add them to our own personal lexicon, our own personal dictionary. Um, a friend used to come to church here, and she used to write down all what she called the SAT words that I would use in sermons. And after a while, I started putting them in more because I knew that she enjoyed them. That's the way we used to do it. But that day has passed. That is not the way it's done anymore. In fact, in 2020, a new word record was set. See what I did there? Like world record, word record, huh? Yeah, I didn't think it was up on either. 
in 2020, more than 15,000 words. That's more than in any other year. 15,000 words were added to the American English language just in 2020. 15,000 words were either added or, or definitions were expanded upon. So new words include such as these. Am I right? That's a new word. What does it mean? It is an informal variant spelling of the phrase, am I right? And it's used to elicit agreement or solidarity at the end of a conversation. Okay, ready? Next new word, contouring. What's that? If you watch YouTube, if, probably if you're a girl or a woman, it's a makeup application style in which the foundation and bronzer are used to create definition along the natural bone structure of the face. Contouring. Next word, eco-anxiety. Eco-anxiety, a specific kind of anxiety caused by a dread of environmental perils, especially climate change, and a feeling of helplessness over the potential consequences for those living now, and even more fear for those to come in later generations. Next is a phrase, gender reveal. What's that? It's a party or an online video, or some other way in which gender, the gender of an unborn baby, is revealed. And finally, this is probably my favorite of all the words that I looked at today, sharent. Uh, sharent, what's that? It can be a verb, meaning to frequently use social media to, I would say, overshare photos or other details and information about one's child. Or it can be used as a noun for a person who does such things. If you've spent all day sharenting, you should probably put the phone down and give your family a break. All right, that's sharenting. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't invent new words because that's how languages work. That's how languages have always worked. The more we interact with each other, the more words we'll need to clearly communicate with each other in a rapidly changing world. So that makes sense. Coming up with new words is completely okay, but there's something that is not okay. The proliferation, the spread of all these new words has led many people to make up new facts to define previously understood, already established words and concepts. See, in an unexpected turn of events, people now feel quite comfortable assigning their own interpretations of words and their own definitions of truth. This is a problem. You see, at best, it can lead to misunderstanding and miscommunication. I've had so many conversations with people, and we're just not speaking the same language anymore. They're saying one thing, I'm responding to another. That's what it does at best, and at worst, it can lead to hatred, it can lead to division, it could lead to violence. In some cases, it could even lead to death. So as followers of Jesus, if we desire peace, we need to be purveyors of grace with a clear understanding of truth in a world that is in short supply of all of them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word, to understand how you would have us live this life, to get to know you better, and to learn a little bit more about grace. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use your word to transform us, heart and mind. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is 
Week four, it's the final installment in our series, God's Grace. We began the series by discovering that God's grace means much more than forgiveness. See, grace not only obtains for us forgiveness, but it can also teach us a whole new way to live. Then we looked at how sometimes we can be paralyzed by that grace. We talked about how there's often a disconnect in between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and our calling to become the light of the world. And this disconnect causes many believers to struggle to grow in their own faith. We saw that if we get stuck on the idea that God's grace is merely another way to describe only forgiveness, we'll miss something. We'll never discover that there's grace for our everyday living. There's grace for our relationships. There's grace in our ministry and for our ministry to others. And then last week, we explored the connection between grace and humility, the connection between God's grace and our humility. And we saw that we need to conquer our pride so that we can fully experience God's grace. Well, today, we're going to be talking about the connection between grace, peace, and truth. So, let's get going. Here's where we're going to start in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, by the way, stop real quick. The word, the Greek word is logos. That is used to refer to Jesus, God, the Son. How do you know that? Because you see the word became flesh and made what's dwelling? His dwelling. Okay, so that's pretty clear. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Today's world is full of people arguing over the truth. People are arguing about the truth on social media. And, and that's given rise to what I think is a somewhat nonsensical phrase, my truth. That's how many people refer now to their own opinions and to their own beliefs, which were up until very recently subject to discussion and critique and, and debate. You could debate somebody else's feelings and positions and beliefs. That's the way it used to be. But sadly, today, some people feel so strongly about their own truth that they're willing to do anything and everything in order to promote their own truth. At this moment in history, even our nation is divided over what is actually true. But the opening of John's gospel mentions truth in the most important context. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus, in Jesus, grace and truth go hand in hand. In fact, grace and truth are inextricably joined. You cannot separate them. Jesus' life and message show the beauty and power of grace and truth walking hand in hand together. And as a result, it's from Jesus that we can learn about how to walk and speak in the world today in both grace and truth. Now, that sounds very straightforward, but doing it is actually trickier than you might think. Why? Because by personality and by upbringing and a whole bunch of other factors, most of us have leaned one way or the other. And here's what I mean by that. There are some people, we're going to call them grace people. Some people lean quite heavily on the grace side. Grace people are very pleasant to be around. They don't ruffle any feathers. 
They cut each other a lot of slack. They're easygoing. They accept us for who we are. They don't make any demands. They're always welcoming. You know grace people? You do, right? Grace people always say things like, hey, go with the flow. Live and let live. To each his own, to each her own. You do you. Those are grace people. Now, all these approaches in theory and often even in practice are great. After all, God's called us to love. He's called us to love him, to love each other, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. Oftentimes, accepting people just as they are. You came from a Baptist church. You sang that every week. That's the loving thing to do. But without truth, grace isn't really grace. Without truth, grace is just being nice. Jesus didn't come to make us nice. But being affirming, being grace-filled, they're not the same thing. Being nice, being grace-filled, it's not equal. Grace people without truth are pleasant to be around for sure, but we wonder, do they really like us? Or, or, or do they just want us to like them? They might be tolerant, but they often don't know the difference between right and wrong, or, or they don't even care one way or the other. Grace people often refuse to make the tough decisions that life often requires. Grace people often demand little from others, but they get little in return. They accept us for who they are, but they never help us to become who we could be. Now, on the flip side, there are others, and those people lean heavily on the truth side. I'll call them truth people. Truth people are very easy to admire. They have convictions. They have principles. They believe in right and wrong. They set standards. They speak out against injustice and oppression and evil. They're often articulate and well-informed, but without grace. Telling the truth can become an excuse for belligerence and often for pride. Truth people without grace deeply care about their cause, but we wonder if they care about us at all. They say they want to change us to make us better, but they don't allow any room for any mistakes. They're very quick to cast judgment on others. They make difficult decisions, but they also make life difficult for other people and also for themselves. They can be very slow to forgive. They can inspire us with their conviction for sure, but they turn us off with their intimidation. So if you're a grace person, you're most concerned about being loved, and if you're a truth person, you're most concerned about being right even if it means being unloved. Both have their benefits, and both have their pitfalls. But God hasn't called us to be one or the other. God hasn't called us to be the compromise of a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. God's called us, as his people, to be a people filled to the brim with both grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth, 100% of the time. As God's people, we all need to be grace people and truth people. All grace and all truth, all the time, just like Jesus. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's that verse 14 again. We have seen the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace or truth is not an option. Jesus showed us that apart from grace, we can't speak the truth. And apart from truth, 
We're not really speaking words of grace. However, when grace and truth are joined together, the peace of God results. So John's gospel continues on in this uh, chapter one. This is verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So what's John doing here? Well, here, John is describing the way in which God's grace isn't just a one and done ticket to heaven. You get God's grace, you go to heaven, that's the end of it. God's grace is a multi-layered feature of a life lived connected to the God of the universe. The longer we walk with God, the more deeply we'll come to love and understand him, and the more profoundly he will impact not only our earthly lives, but the earthly lives of those around us as we reflect God's grace to them. Any C.S. Lewis fans out here? One of my favorites, good. Glad to see you guys raise your hand. The Last Battle. Last Battle is the final book, the final installment of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. That's, you, you all, most people just know the line, the witch in the wardrobe is actually seven books. In the last battle, Peter, Lucy, and the others were confused. They had just witnessed something that they'd never thought they'd see. They witnessed the destruction of Narnia, their home, only to find themselves in a land that was almost exactly like it, but better. Then the unicorn spoke up. Here's what the unicorn said when he summarized what everyone was feeling. I have come home at last. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And then he says this, come further up, come further in. Come further up, come further in. No matter how far they had gone, no matter how far they had gotten, they found that there was always more ahead. Over and over, that call rang out, come further up and come further in. And in the same way, if we walk with God for another 50 years, we'll discover again and again the way he calls us to come further up and further in into the godly life. But take note. If we think God's grace is restricted to being merely a ticket to heaven, there is no further up and further in. You stop right there. And you stop right there in this life and always then in the next too. One sure indicator of a person with a religiously closed mind is the firm conviction that they are done growing. They've figured out this whole Jesus thing. Just ask them, they'll tell you. The religiously closed mind is only interested in exporting its prideful brand of spirituality. Don't do that. If we want to experience the full blessing of God's grace, we can't be that way. It's impossible to drink in God's grace if we do nothing but tell other people how to live. As Jesus' brother James reminded us in James 4, 6, God continuously gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We talked about that last week. As you're humble, that's where God brings more grace. James discovered this multi-layered grace of God as he learned to humble himself over and over again. Remember, James was Jesus' little brother. He didn't believe his big brother was the Messiah until after he came back from the dead. I don't know how many of you grew up with brothers, but it would be really hard to believe your brother's the Messiah, wouldn't it? Would for me. When we humble ourselves, we put ourselves in that position for greater and greater grace as well. By humbling ourselves, we can create an atmosphere of peace 
that allows us then to speak the truth, the truth filled with grace. We can tell the Apostle Paul understood this notion as well. Paul opened each one of his letters with the very same greeting. Did you ever notice this? Thirteen times Paul said, grace and peace to you. That's how he opened his letters. Whether Paul was writing to a community of believers in Corinth or Ephesus, whether he was writing to Timothy and Titus, his, his sons in the faith, whether he was writing generally to present the difference between slavery and brotherhood, his blessing was always grace and peace. Here's what it looked like. This is just an example out of 1 Corinthians to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why did Paul do this? Why did Paul greet everybody in this manner? What was so important about grace and peace that Paul felt the need to speak those words at the beginning of every single communication? Well, he did so because he understood the importance of our ongoing need for both of them, for both grace and peace. And Paul picked that up from Jesus. Jesus instructed the original 12 disciples in Luke 10, when you enter a house, what's the first thing you say? Peace to this house. And saying this, Jesus had in mind something more than words. He's not just saying, peace, man. Like, that's not what he meant. He knew that a greeting of peace would rest upon the people in the house and it would be an example of God's grace. Further, by bringing others God's peace through God's grace, Paul amassed a surplus of grace and peace for himself. When you give away grace and peace, you collect grace and peace in your own life. Once grace and peace were established between Paul and the communities that he loved, he was then in the proper position, the proper posture then to speak the truth into their lives. You have to have some kind of relationship with people if you're going to actually speak the truth in love. I know a lot of people who tell me they're speaking the truth in love, but the love doesn't show. Many of Paul's churches face persecution from the outside. Some of the churches experienced disagreements on the inside. All of them needed grace and peace. Grace and peace were so important for God's people that Paul presented these gifts up front just as a guest would when you, when you enter a house and you bring a bottle of wine or a loaf of bread or a dessert. Paul wanted his friends to experience God's grace and his peace. And when necessary, then he would bring loving words of reproof in order to get them to grace and peace. Jesus had some straightforward instructions to his followers who had received a measure of grace and peace from God. Here's what Jesus said, freely you received, therefore freely give. Because we, as God's people, have received grace and peace from God, then we have grace and peace then to give away. And guess what? You won't run out. It never runs out. It's not a zero-sum game. If I give away grace and peace to you, then I won't have any in my own life. It's not the way it works. Look at Paul's words from Romans 8, chapter Chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, you've heard this thing that God's angry at you, and oh, you did this bad, and you did that bad, and all that. How does that square with Romans 8, 1? It doesn't. There's no condemnation. These words were not words he claimed exclusively for himself. Paul was speaking them over everyone who was listening to or, or reading his letter. Many, many believers have quoted this verse on their own behalf 
in order to fight off their own feelings of guilt, their own feelings of condemnation. Hey, there's no condemnation, I'm fine. But how many people have actually quoted this verse on behalf of other people? If God has given us grace and peace in any area of our lives, then we can and we should give that grace and peace away as well. Now, this notion has many applications. Here are just a few examples. Let's say, for example, one believer may have learned the secret of contentment with respect to financial matters. Okay? So he's at peace. Another may have learned how to place everyday fears at the feet of Jesus. You see, the peace from God's grace that those believers have received might be the very thing that they can bring to someone else, the very thing that they can give to someone else to bring grace and peace to their life. God blesses us with his grace and peace so that we can be a blessing to others. We all have something to give. We all can give grace and peace to a world that desperately needs grace and peace. Grace is abundant and grace is free. And when we understand God's grace for what it is, we want it. We all want in. Grace is really, as we sang this morning, amazing. Yet, even considering everything we've seen, grace still has its obstacles. And even more startling is the reality that we ourselves are sometimes our own barriers to grace. So as we begin to kind of wind down this series, we should recognize why we're that way and understand the steps we'll need to take to eliminate all the impediments standing in the way of our blessing others with grace and peace. So now let's real quick examine ourselves in the two main areas that serve as obstacles to grace and peace. So here come the two main areas. This will go quick. A root of bitterness. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that, here it is, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Man, oh man, you carry around that bitterness, it doesn't make anybody feel good, not even you. The writer of Hebrews tells us that bitterness is an obstacle to grace. The wounded heart, when you've been hurt, the wounded heart draws inward and it avoids even grace for itself. Bitterness is defined in this statement, I want to be alone, I want to be left alone in my pain. But see, when that happens, you're not really alone. It's an illusion. This passage warns us that apart from the grace of God, our bitterness, the unsettled scores that we carry around in our lives will always seep into the lives of those people around us. You know a bitter person? Nobody here. But you know them, and you kind of go, oh, I don't want to be around that person today. They're so bitter. Our bitterness can defile other people. In our pain, when we refuse God's grace, we can defile a lot of people. It happens when we think we're suffering in, in silence and solitude, but we don't know, we don't remember that when one member of the body suffers, the whole body is in pain. So in order to be purveyors of grace and peace, we need to be diligent to eliminate bitterness from our lives. Number two, there's this scarcity mentality. Now, the second opponent of grace, the second opponent of peace, is the fear that somehow those things are a zero-sum game. Somehow, grace comes prepackaged, but in very limited amounts. See, when we think of grace this way, it ain't so amazing. 
We lose sight of the fact that God has promised it's not going anywhere. God's love endures how long? Forever. Our human nature causes us to think that whatever grace we find, we need to hoard it for ourselves. But the Father, if he clothes the flowers of the field, if he feeds the birds of the air, how much more will he provide us with this life-giving freedom that comes through grace? Because when we share the grace we've received, it's then we'll discover the source of all grace who gives the Holy Spirit without limit. Now for the believer in Jesus, for the person who has understood that notwithstanding our inherent sinfulness, Jesus loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, Jesus has made a way for us to be connected forever to God whenever we turn from our natural selves and understanding how Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross when he died and then he was put into a tomb, but then he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He promised to return one day to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. When we understand all that and devote our lives to his lordship, we'll be well on our way to understanding that God's given us grace for today and grace for tomorrow. The God who saved us by his grace and through his truth wants to provide grace in the everyday grace for growth and to sustain peace. Grace, peace, and truth. Jesus was all about grace. He welcomed and even ate with sinners. He welcomed and even ate with tax collectors. He had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry and when they were far from home. He welcomed little children to come and sit on his lap, gentler and kinder than any department store Santa. He healed the lepers. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He saved the criminal on the cross who in his dying breath confessed that the man dying next to him, Jesus, was truly the son of God. Jesus was all grace and Jesus was all truth. He condemned the religious leaders of his day for being liars and hypocrites. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He called all those who would be his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow him. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for their unrepentant hearts. Jesus obeyed the law. Jesus set standards. Jesus demanded everything from his followers, even their very lives. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. But Jesus didn't come only to give us an example of grace and truth. Jesus came to save us in grace and truth. And it's only after we've been saved and made right with God that God says something like this, all right, this did not come from the Bible. I'm telling you what this says. Now that I've saved you through Jesus, you need to know that I have saved you to look like Jesus. I didn't save you for you to be the same. You were born again. You were born anew. This new birth, this new person is now to look like our Lord and Savior. The motivation to be full of grace and truth is not because we need to earn God's favor. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's because being a follower of Jesus means that we are supposed to look like the one whom we follow. We desperately need grace in our lives. 
We need to hear those words of peace from Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We need to know that God doesn't expect us to clean up our acts before we come to him. God implores us to come now, to come today, just as we are in brokenness, in pain, in humility, in repentance, and in faith. We need to hear that wayward children who have squandered their inheritance and lived immoral, rebellious lives can come home into the arms of their heavenly father. In order to experience God's peace, we desperately need God's grace in our lives, and we desperately need God's truth in our lives. We need to hear from Jesus what this saying really means. I tell you the truth. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, but the Son, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We need someone as gracious as Jesus to tell us the truth. You're not okay. You're guilty. And anyone who tells you otherwise isn't telling you the truth. And because they won't tell you the truth, you won't experience the grace that you need. If we want peace, we need truth. We need grace. And we need Jesus. Only Jesus lived in perfect grace and perfect truth. Only Jesus can save the hard-hearted, the hard-headed sinners full of lies and deserving judgment. And it's only through our union with Jesus that we can grow in the same truth and the same grace that walked among us in the miracle of the incarnation. Let's never forget grace. God's grace that makes beauty from ugly things and brings us peace. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this series on grace. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us now to take these things that we've heard, take the words that you've given us for our hearts and apply them in our lives. From this moment forward, allow us to be people of grace and people of truth. Allow us to be that perfect blend of completely gracious and completely truthful. Because God, we know that it is through grace and truth you will bring peace. You will bring a people to yourself. You will guide us in this world. God, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.